Hey, everyone. It's Robert Poole with the Growing Your B2B Small Business Podcast. Let me ask you, have you ever bought something and then said to yourself shortly afterwards, why did I buy that? Then you've returned it or at least regretted buying it. I mean, this is classic buyer's remorse. We've all experienced in our personal lives, but our customers are no different. Buyer's remorse can cost us a lot of money in the short term, but the long-term damage is even worse. Let's talk about how to prevent this. you have a small business that sells to other businesses? If so, you probably know that there are plenty of resources for companies that market to consumers or companies that sell to large and Fortune 500 type companies. But what about the small businesses in the middle who sell to other companies? Where do we go to get answers? How do we grow our company consistently while still keeping our sanity? That's the question, and this podcast is the answer. If you're listening to this podcast, you're part of an elite group of achievers who aren't willing to settle for just a nine-to-five job. You're one of the heroes in our society, and you should be proud of it. Welcome to the tribe and welcome home. Okay, everyone, I hope you're having a fantastic day. In the last episode, we talked about the powerful drugs we can use to make our customers love buying from us. If you missed that one, I'd listen to it first as this episode uses some of the same concepts from the last episode and it'll make more sense. You know, I originally got the idea for this episode from a client who came to us a few months ago and asked if I had any ideas on preventing buyer's remorse. I didn't think a lot about it at the time, but I've been thinking about it a lot recently as I think it affects a lot of us more than we realize. You know, looking back at uh, our company, Sales Double, which is a B2B marketing company, over the last 20 years, we've probably had more clients suffer from buyer's remorse than I'd like to admit, and more than we probably don't even know about for that matter. So before we go further, let's get on the same page as to what I'm talking about when I say buyer's remorse. I mean, I think we all know that feeling when we buy something on a whim and then shortly after, we kind of get that feeling of apprehension that maybe it wasn't the best decision. You know, if it's significant enough of a purchase, this can even turn into a panic of, you know, oh my gosh, what did I do? I mean, uh, you know, what are my coworkers or my friends going to think? What's my spouse going to say? I mean, what if it doesn't work? Did I get taken advantage of, you know, that horrible sinking feeling? Did I spend too much money? I mean, I mean if it doesn't work out, am I going to need the money for something else and I'm going to regret this? You know, Following up what I said at the beginning, and you know, in the last episode, we talked about the different drugs in our brains and their effects during the buying process. Buyer's remorse can clearly be seen by what chemicals are being released and has a physical manifestation. I mean, it's just like eating a bunch of sugar, and then you feel that physical, emotional, and mental crash later. The release of those chemicals in the buyer's remorse stage can be just as painful and uncomfortable. In the buyer's remorse stage, we get an increase in the stress hormone called cortisol. You know, the dopamine generated in the buying process phase fades and the endorphin high that keeps the cortisol levels in check fades as well. And oxytocin production is very muted and we lose any feeling of connection or identity shift. Basically, buyer's remorse undoes all the progress we've made in emotionally getting the prospect through the buying process in a pleasant way. So obviously, this doesn't sound like a positive thing. You know, and I was mentioned before in this podcast, I like to attack problems or challenges in really kind of a four-step framework or process. I mean, number one, we've clearly got to define the problem. You know, if we don't have visibility on what the problem is, you know, it's very hard to fix it. Two, you know, we have to think about the consequences of not dealing with that problem or challenge. I mean, if it's going to affect the bottom line in the immediate or in the long run, it needs to be fixed. But if it's not that big of a problem, we don't want to bother with it because we just don't have time. Much better to be done than perfect, uh, you know, in solving every single little problem. So if we decide it's a problem that justifies fixing, the next step is to figure out why it is happening. 
and identify the root causes. When if we don't know what's causing the problem, it's really a crapshoot when we're trying to come up with solutions to fix it. And then four, of course, is coming up with the solutions to address the problem and actually implementing them. So with buyer's remorse, we've identified the problem. It's pretty easy to see in our returns, in our, you know, cancellations and long-term disgruntled customers, or, you know, at least not enthusiastic customers. But the next question is, why does this happen? I mean, we're all buyers and consumers and most likely as business owners. You know, why do we experience buyer's remorse in, you know, either a small way or big time when making the wrong decision? In my opinion, you know, it's really two reasons. Number one is a lack of identity shift, and number two is the lack of a logical justification. So first, let's talk about identity shift. I mean, what is identity shift? Well, in a basic sense, it's simply how we view ourselves. For instance, you know, are, are you an iPhone user or an Android person? Are you a Coke or a Pepsi person? Are you a Democrat, Republican, Independent? You know, identity is all throughout all of our lives. It's, you know, our view of our personalities. It's the group we belong to or the groups. You know, it's buyers and loyalty to certain brands and so on. So if we want our customers to buy from us repeatedly and feel good about their purchase, we have to help them take on beliefs that they're users and happy customers of our service or product and preferably fans of it, of course. And, you know, this sounds a little theoretical, but it's important to understand the general concept. Our identities are really so strong and influence our actions that they'll actually trump and override our own beliefs. You know, as an example, you know, say we view ourselves as an introvert. You know, that would be me, by the way. But if we consider ourselves an introvert, it's very hard and it's unnatural for us to act extroverted, you know, chatty and strike up a conversation with strangers. You know, it can be done, but without social pressure and left to our own devices, we simply won't do it. We, you know, we're fighting against our nature. We may believe that we need to act extroverted, that we have the skills to do it, but in the end, we're, we're fighting against our nature until we start to view ourselves as extroverts or at least neutral. So, you know, another example, let's say you play tennis casually. You know, if we don't think of ourselves as, you know, a quote, tennis player, it's doubtful that we'll ever be really good. You know, however, if we start buying all the tennis gear, talking uh, tennis with friends, taking lessons, and we sort of start to view ourselves as, you know, a tennis player in that community, that group, you know, we're going to get a lot better and a lot faster. Again, you know, we're switching that identity, which allows us to be someone who does things differently. In the buying process, it's really the same thing. You know, all buyers come to us with beliefs about our product or service. They don't view themselves as buyers and users of our service because they haven't experienced it yet. You know, they're evaluating us and our product or service to see if potentially they'd like to become buyers of our product. I mean, it sounds simplistic, but it's true. You know, when they do this evaluation throughout the process, they eventually make a decision, you know, am I the type of person who buys this product? Am I going to be a buyer of it? Or, you know, I don't think I'm the kind of person who buys this kind of service. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to be a user of this service. Now, again, that's their identity. You know, if a prospect hasn't convinced themselves that they're a buyer of our product or service, they may be, you know, temporarily and, you know, emotionally excited enough to pull the trigger on the sale. But soon afterwards, when the dopamine and the other chemicals fade, they're going to realize that they really aren't that person who buys that kind of a service and they get buyer's remorse at some level. And, you know, as this said, as a sort of a side note, you know, Notice I, I said that a prospect hasn't convinced themselves there are buyers. You know, if we tell them something, it's just an opinion. But if they start to tell themselves something, it's the truth. And of course, that's um, all throughout this buying process. So we have to guide them along to convince themselves, not us convince them. So bottom line, lack of identity shift to be more friendly to our product or service is really a big cause of a buyer's remorse. So 
what's the other big reason behind buyer's remorse? I call it logical justification. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever bought something and then shortly afterwards you said to yourself, geez, why did I do that? That doesn't even make sense. I mean, I think we all have. You know, impulse buys are an example of this. You know, you're standing in line at the grocery store and they put all those small little items for sale right next to you, you know, candy bars, snacks, trinkets, whatever. You know, you didn't go in there to buy that stuff and they're usually not good for you and most of the time it's a waste of money. So they're hard to justify after the initial purchase. I mean, with a very small purchase, it's unlikely to, you know, return that candy bar because it's not a, that significant of a purchase, book 50 or whatever. But if you just signed a $20,000 deal that has a three-day out, it's much likelier for you to question that purchase after you come down from that buying high. What triggers buyer's remorse, either at the tiny level or a more significant purchase, when it comes to logical justification, is just that the emotional high fades and our brains sort of shift into the more logical side of the brain. And this side wants logical reasons why we just bought. You know, if we have a hard time rationally justifying the purchase, we're going to start thinking like things like, you know, I could have purchased, you know, essentially the same thing for less money at XYZ competitor. Or, you know, you start to look around at the purchases of others and you see that maybe they didn't choose what you did. You start to have people like your peers or your friends comment on your purchase and question why you bought it. They might even tell you you could have gotten a better deal elsewhere. You know, why do you need that? You know, there are better solutions out there and so on. I mean, if your spouse or business partner asks you why you bought it and your only rationalization is, well, because I was excited and, you know, it seemed like a good idea and I liked the salesperson at the time. I mean, this is basically, you know, usually immediately an embarrassment and a return right away. So, you know, you, another one, you know, maybe you look at your finances and realize that you just made a big commitment and start to get scared. Well, if it doesn't work, you know, uh, you know, it may really hurt ourselves financially. And in general, you just struggle to justify it to yourself. You feel duped because you can't logically justify the purchase. So bottom line, if we don't give our prospects logical justification, which support their emotional purchase, then we're asking for some level of buyer's remorse. Okay, so, you know, that's a little insight into the why behind the buyer's remorse, and that's nice and dandy, but, you know, especially from a psychology point of view, but let's talk reality here. I mean, what does this mean to us running and growing our businesses? As most of us know, it's much more costly to acquire a customer than to keep them. You know, if we're losing customers due to buyer's remorse, we're costing ourselves a lot of money because they have to be replaced with another new customer, and it's a net growth of zero customers. So what are the consequences of uh, buyer's remorse to our business? Well, you know, obviously there's the uh, immediate consequences, but I think there's something that we don't focus on, and it's the long-term consequences, as they're much more costly and damaging. First, though, let's talk about the immediate consequences of having customers experience buyer's remorse. I mean, depending on, you know, your return or cancellations policy, this could be just a refund for a sale, you know. If you take credit cards, it can also result in a chargeback. You know, one of the problems with entrepreneurs and business owners is that we tend to be optimistic about things. I mean, this is, uh, you know, one of the, the things that enables us to move forward and grow and do things, but at times it can also get us in trouble. You know, in this situation, if we're encountering significant problems with buyer's remorse and returns and cancellations, it can create cash flow problems. I mean, let's say you have a product that costs $1,000. You close the sale, yay, you know. You see the money in the bank, which helps pay company expenses, commissions, cost of production, whatever. You know, hopefully you have big cash reserves, but for most of us, that revenue goes right into paying operational expenses. You know, a month from now, you get a return and have to credit back to $1,000. Even though you're technically out a net of nothing, it's very likely that that 1000 is already spent. 
And the return to the customer becomes another expense that you might not be expecting. You know, if we know over time that we have about a 10% return rate, I mean, let's face it, how many of us have a separate account that we take 10% of the revenue from each sale and put it in there since we know we'll have to pay that back at some point? I mean, I know at our company, we've struggled with tracking things like this over the years, and I see it with commission salespeople all the time. I mean, it's just human nature. And I guess we're not the only ones who um, fall prey to this. So that's the short term and bad enough, but there are long-term consequences that are even more costly. First, let's talk about the effect uh, of returns, refunds, and cancellations that have on our internal team. I mean, it doesn't seem like, you know, returns should matter that much other than some time for someone to process the billing, but there's a more insidious effect. And this is a big one with salespeople. You know, you've heard salespeople say they can sell anything that they believe in, but the flip side to that is that they don't believe in what they're selling. That's going to come through the prospect and the sales are going to suffer. Well, by having a too high of a return or a cancellation rate, you know, inside people start to question the validity and value of the products and services they're selling. If they start to see a substantial number of returns or cancellations or even just unhappy customers, they're going to take it personally. I mean, if you're selling a high-end software product and you start hearing about all the bugs it has and start seeing returns coming in left and right, how much confidence is that going to give you when you're speaking to a new prospect? So demoralizing your own salespeople and your team in general with a high level of buyer's remorse, it does more damage than the returns themselves. I mean, customers are much easier to replace than the team members themselves. So that's kind of the, some of the negatives on internal team members, but what about the company's perception in the marketplace? As I say, you know, good news travels fast, but bad news travels faster. In today's era of social media, things that affect reputation are out there to thousands of people, literally sometimes within minutes. I mean, let's say a client doesn't return or cancel the contract, I mean, in that scenario, it can actually be worse in the long run if they stay on as a client. The long-term bad blood can be even more costly. I mean, these could literally be clients for a long time, months or even years, and they still kind of have a sour taste in their mouth, but not enough to quit. I'll take it a step further to say anything short of a ringing endorsement does damage that you can't control and usually have no idea is even happening. I mean, you'll never know how many sales you lost. Now, I did some research for this episode on buyer's remorse and a lot of the data is consumer-based, but I think the general principles of human behavior are all the same in, you know, in B2B and especially when it comes to buyer's remorse. For instance, uh, you know, I found that you know, a customer who's dissatisfied will tell between 9 and 15 people about their experience, with 1 in 10 telling 20 people about their bad experience. For every customer who bothers to complain, 26 customers remain silent. That means that only 4% of the dissatisfied customers complain while 96% will never let you know there was a problem. I mean, customers may not bother to complain for, you know, many reasons, but, you know, if we take the average value of a client to your company and multiply that by, you know, at a minimum nine, you know, in this case, I mean, that's how much a disgruntled buyer or buyer's remorse client is actually costing us. So I don't mean to beat this to death, but I just wanted to get across how costly not mitigating buyer's remorse is in the short term as well as the long term if we don't nip it in the bud before it happens. So now that we know what it is and why it happens and the consequences not dealing with it, the question is, what do we do about it, of course? Well, let's go back to the two main root causes, lack of identity shift and logical justification. If we get these handled, that will prevent the vast majority of buyer's remorse. I mean, nothing works every time, but dealing with these underlying causes is about as good as it gets. So first, identity shift. You know, this can be a tricky one to figure out, and it'll likely take some thought. However, with a little practice, we can start effortlessly changing the identity 
of our prospects to be more friendly to our solution. So to start with, we need to figure out, you know, where they are in their identity right now. And then we can define how we want them to make that shift and where we want them to go. Again, you know, I mean, this is kind of a simplistic example, but, you know, let's say you're trying to switch people from iPhones to Androids. I mean, we can identify a person's identity pretty easily with Apple. Apple's done a great job of turning Apple products and iPhones in particular into sort of a community identity and, you know, almost like a cult following. So we kind of know where they're coming from. They view themselves as an iPhone user or an Apple person. Either, you know, they're very loyal and sometimes even fanatical about their brand loyalty or, you know, at the minimum, dissatisfied. I mean, they most likely have certain beliefs about iPhones and then, you know, they have other beliefs about Androids. If you want to make them switch, you know, we need to start removing the beliefs that are positive to the iPhone and start replacing them with the beliefs that are more friendly to Android. And I'm not going to go into the specifics on actually how we do this, but, you know, this replacement, as I did a whole episode on a, on a while back, but, you know, as a quick summary, we need to show the prospect that their current beliefs are not useful or accurate and get them to start considering the possibility that holding a different belief would actually benefit them. You know, the trick is how you do this so it's, you know, not to turn them off by making them feel like a dummy. And of course, you know, the best way to do this was a story. You know, when, once uh, we have spent time with a story attacking the old beliefs and building new ones, we kind of need to check in and make sure that this has actually worked and they've started this shift. You know, we can do this by making, you know, assumptive statements like, hey, Mr. Prospect, you know, now that you're, you know, insert identity here, or now that you're considering an Android phone, you can feel good that you're part of other successful customers who really enjoy this. You know, if you don't find the customer agreeing with you, then we know we haven't made the shift and need to involve more story and more detail. The last part of identity shifting is making sure we trigger that oxytocin release we talked about the last episode. Oxytocin is that cuddle hormone that gives us connection with others. We want to make sure that our customers are feeling sort of camaraderie with other people. And one of the easiest ways to do this is by creating a community of happy clients that they're sort of welcomed into. You know, if they buy something and then they're invited into a group with other clients, they're much more likely to feel part of the group and get that oxytocin release and much less likely to ask for a return or cancellation. I mean, peer pressure is amazing. So if you want to talk more about uh, identity shifting, check out that other episode. I think it was called uh, Clark Kent in the phone booth or something like that. Um, so now let's talk about the other big reason behind buyer's remorse and how we deal with it. And that's what I call logical justification. This is simply all the rational reasons why they made the purchase. I mean, since all marketing and sales is emotional, we need to help our clients justify logically what they emotionally just did. What we want to do is give them so many logical reasons they bought that they'll have no problem overcoming those questions from others and the questions that pop up in their own brain when, they're, when the buying drugs fade. This is where the irresistible offer comes in. I mean, we want to give them so many compelling reasons that, you know, they'd be stupid not to buy, and so they feel good about it. We need to give them enough ammo that they could stand up in front of their peers and justify their purchase with logical reasons, not emotional, because their peers haven't been part of the emotional process. So what are some of the areas that we can give them this arsenal of reasons? Uh, you know, what about the area of cost or investment? We want to figure out things like, you know, why is it worth X amount compared to the others? What's the proof or evidence that will pay off, you know, social proof? You know, testimonials that vouch for it or interest in it, demand. You know, uh, features and benefits compared to the competition. Uh, you know, in the next category, I'd say probably urgency. You know, um, you have to justify in your mind, well, I had to buy it now because, you know, the price is going up by X date or, you know, the offer is going to expire by this time. 
Or, you know, I wanted to get this problem handled because it's costing us X dollars per day if we wait. And, you know, the other big one in closing process, of course, is scarcity. You know, I had to buy now because, you know, they're going to, I'm, they may run out. You know, I'm, the competitors might get to it before we do. You know, it's clearly a good product as there's high demand. Uh, there's a waiting list. You know, other people want it, you know, and it may not be available for the future. So if we can give them strong, compelling, and logical reasons based upon cost, urgency, and scarcity, you know, we're going to give them the ammunition to defeat those thoughts of panic that often come up after a large purchase. They're going to walk away with their chemical high and then justify the fun they just had buying by giving themselves and others reasons why they bought. So takeaways from this episode, you know, buyer's remorse is a real problem that we probably all have. You know, it's caused by those two main factors, the lack of identity shift and lack of logical justification. And, you know, the consequences in the short run are refunds and chargebacks, that sort of thing. And then the long run consequences are much more damaging, like we talked about. And how do we prevent or mitigate this? Well, we figure out how to shift their identity to a more of a buyer of our service and more friendly to our solution. You know, we give them plenty of logical justifications that they can tell themselves and others. So that's kind of the, the process we use. Uh, thanks for listening today, and I will talk to you soon. Have an awesome day. Thanks for listening today. I know your time's valuable, and it's really an honor to serve you. You know, if you found this content useful, I'd really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on iTunes and leave a review with your honest feedback, whether it's good or bad. You know, also, if you're interested in growing your B2B business through direct contact marketing like we do, uh, please call my office at Sales Double and speak to one of our sales representatives. You know, we can chat for a few minutes about your business and what you need most to grow your business, even if it's not our services. And, you know, as a side note, if you listen to this podcast regularly, you probably know that I have a little pet peeve about using fancy words to talk in code, so to speak. So we're not going to do a, quote, discovery call or a, quote, strategy call, just a quick question and answer call. And yes, if we think you're a candidate for our service, we'll try to sell you. But we're not going to hide behind fancy corporate news as we know you're smart enough to see through that. We believe in telling the truth and even if it's not what people want to hear. That said, give us a call at 480-401-1926 if you're interested in talking about how to grow your business and have your best year ever. 